This is just a, like an intro uh, to our study. If, you ha- if you've never gone through the Experiencing God book or the, or the study, if you have, you say, well, that might be just old hat. Uh, we're just going to focus basically on the seven realities that's come out of chapter 5. Uh, we'll put two of them together because they're so close first kin that uh, we'll only do actually six of them uh, because two of them will be put together, and our, our weeks will allow us to cover all of them. So if you have the book, just go ahead and study and, and be ready uh, because you know we're, that's what we're going to do in our small groups. We'll talk about that. If you remember or if you ever saw uh, the movie Jurassic Park, is that the first one? You know, when they had all the dinosaurs now alive and... They take this, what do you call him, a paleontologist, you know, who's been studying him all his life and spent his whole life into it. And now face to face, he sees it. Man, what would that have been like? You know, oh, you've been studying bones and all this stuff. But in, and all of a sudden, one day you're presented and you see face to face one of these things. That's kind of what this is about, uh, experiencing God. When you look at it from that perspective, you know, that's what's happening. And it's the same thing. For many people, spirituality amounts to picking through artifacts, as he would have done fossils and things that they would have found, of faith that survived from long, long ago and far away. That's the way some people look at it. Some people still see it that way. In that bygone era, humans saw God, heard his voice, and experienced his awesomeness, and sometimes in his terrible power, absolutely. But today, those kinds of gripping encounters with God, with a God who wasn't, an illusion, but someone who was real, Jesus in the flesh. Someone you could see and touch and feel. Now it would be no comparison. You know, we're living on this side of the resurrection. We have so many more advantages than people did that uh, lived before Christ. Uh, you know, in a sense, it's, it can be more real uh, because we're not just picking through the old stuff, even though we need that. I'm not saying we, we can't. You know, to be where we are today, where we're supposed to be, we have to have what happened in the Old Testament, regardless of what all these current so-called, and Anley Stanley is about a theologian, as uh, Meredith's got more sense than that. You know, he said, we don't need Old Testament. No, you have to have it. Why? The New Testament doesn't make any sense uh, without that. But now face-to-face, kind of that's what this is. The essence of eternal life and the heart of experiencing God, this whole, the whole book and the whole concept, is that for us personally to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's it. Uh, and uh, that's what it means. It does not come from a program. You know, you can go to this program and still not have it. Still not have the experience. Absolutely. It's not just a study or a method. It's, a, it's the result of growing one-on-one in a relationship with God. You know, that. And that's why we need one another to help us. That's why we want to try to do it with the small groups. In this intimate connection, God will reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways so that we can know him in a a deeper, profound way than we would have before. You know, regardless, well, I've been saved for 50 years, so it doesn't mean you've really had a a full experience that God wants you to have. And please, I'm I'm going to take a little sidestep here for just a minute. And talk about because this can kind of get close to that same idea of existentialism that we don't want to make sure that it's married, all right? Because when you start talking about experience, 
existentialism was all about experience, and you really don't need all those facts of the Bible. You just have that experience. Well, I'm just going to go out there and sit under the tree, and then I'll have all the God I need. No, you won't. I mean, you, you won't. You'll have part of it. That's general revelation. That's not special revelation. You have to have more than that. And that's, it. that's why we want to be careful. All religious truth should be experienced. That's right. You know, you take a Muslim. They don't think about that. All they have is, oh, no, no, I made a, I made a decision of my will. I'm going to follow Allah, and I'm going to keep these rules. It's nothing personal. They don't ever think about God in a personal way. No, no. I mean, it's totally different. So when you start thinking about it, it should be an experience. Religious truth is contrast to other forms that is preeminently a truth to be experienced. You know, God wants us to experience that. But you have to have some guidelines because uh, there are all kinds of people who say, well, I had this experience and now I know God. And, and I'm thinking, tell me about that a little bit. And they start telling you about this experience. And I'm thinking, that has nothing to do with any revelation from the Scripture whatsoever. You know, anybody can have that. And it might not be from God. So you, you have to be careful when you talk about experiencing something. William James said that the very heart of religious experience is the aim to have a satisfying transcendent. You know what that means, right? God is out there, but yet he comes to us and we have a relationship with him. He transcends time as we know it. He's not just in here with us. He's in here with us, but outside of that. That's exactly what he says. Kierkegaard, who absolutely we don't agree with him on a lot of stuff. <laughs> he said this is personal rather than mere propositional. What does that mean? The proposition is the truth. We know this. We know this. And Paul talks about it all through his letters. He gives us propositions. And then he says, because of this truth, practically, you should live this out. Okay, that's, a, what, that's what we're talking about. Experience, living it out. An experience that provides a living relationship with the living God. You know, by and large, in the Old Testament, they didn't have that. Uh, like we have it. I mean, it, 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 it came to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. In that sense, religious truth is far more than we know. And that's what some people would try to say. Oh, it's just what I know. And just because I know this, it's just a bunch of facts. And that's good enough for me. No, it's not that. It is what we live. It's simply not truth for believers to grasp, but something that grasps us. That experience causes us to live differently. Isn't that what we're after? I mean, that's supposed to be what we're after, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you, you'll keep my commandments. And if you love me, you'll do this and you'll do this and you'll do Your life will be different. That's the whole purpose of what we're looking at. In a general sense, all truth must be experienced. Is this true? How about you mathematicians? Is a mathematical truth true if you've never figured it out and experienced it? You know, I can, you know, you can, uh, I mean, that's just a secular example, but isn't that the same truth? You know, you say, well, I, I know this is supposed to be true, but I haven't lived that out. So I haven't experienced that truth, even though I know that that propositional truth is there, I haven't lived it out. You know, there's a lot of people, bless their heart, when something bad happens, they say, well, I know how you feel. And you say, wait a minute, have you lost, have you done this? No, I said, then you don't know. You know, that's an experience oftentimes tied to that particular situation. 
and you and you you say, man, I'm sorry, right? But you haven't gone through the experience. There's a lot more than just knowing. It is knowing how it's lived out, and that's exactly what we're talking about. So experience in the sense is not only important to religious faith, it's essential. You know, to, for us to really be what God wants us to be, it has to come th through experience as well, how, how that works itself out. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, you know, all of this came out of Germany. Uh, it came from the Enlightenment when we kind of threw God and gave him his walking papers and said, we got it all figured out. You know, the Bible's not true, and that's kind of where we are now. You know, there are no absolutes, basically, in, in our culture. They say, oh, no, nothing's absolute now. Everything's up for suggestion. I mean, it's all based on your own experience, right? Well, if it's true for you, then it's okay, but it's not true for me. It's not true. Same thing. Existentialism emphasizes living over knowing. You don't have to know anything to do the right thing. Yeah, you do. Willing over thinking, contrary to over the abstract, and dynamic over the static. Love over law, personal over the propositional, the individual over society, the subjective over the objective. The non-rational over the rational, and freedom over necess necessity. So be careful. We don't want anyone to ever get caught up in and say, oh, oh, this experience is just like existentialism. No, it's not. It's not even close. You know, that is a whole other world that's way out yonder. And we're seeing results of that existentialism. So what is it? What is the key to experiencing God? Quickly, the extremely, you know, this is a great thing, a great concept that they put together. But it's, it's, you don't find how to experience God in the Scripture. You know what I mean? It's not there. Well, there's never a command to experience God. It's just not in there, all right? Nothing wrong with the concept. A lot of principles come out of it. It's not exactly where you see experiencing God from the Scripture. Now, we see all kind of things, commands in there uh, that lead to this, absolutely. We're to love God? Absolutely. We obey God? Absolutely. Are we to trust God? All these things come out of these principles. We're to fear God and many others. But nowhere does it absolutely say you are commanded to experience God, okay? It's just not in there, but that's good. That's okay. There, I, these guys are, have done a good job. What then does it mean? What does that mean? Well, look at the dictionary. What does it say? Put them together and apply it to our relationship to God, and it's kind of like this. We come up with something like participating in the nature of God, being moved by Him, and learning of Him by being familiar with Him. How do we know? Because He's revealed Himself to us through the Scripture. We wouldn't know anything if it wasn't for the Scripture. You know, when people say, well, we can be saved without a Scripture, you don't have a clue how to do anything without the Scripture. So when Andy comes along and says, we don't need a scripture, then how do you know this? You don't know it on your own. In your fallen nature, you don't know that. You don't know how to fix it. You can't fix it. Before we can participate in God in any way, we have to come to terms with a couple things, two conflicts. One of us, we're sinners. All of us. All of us. We're, we're sinners. Number two, we can't fix it. You know, we, we kind of know that already. There's nothing that we can do to make God accept us. You know, well, that's kind of a baseline. We've got to know those two things, right? That's part of it. Now, let's, that's just all introduction. All right? The third part of that is a lifelong process of learning. You know, living the Christian life is learning about what God wants us to do and then submitting our will to that and then having the power of the Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. It's all put in there together. It's not just one little thing. It's kind of complicated sometimes. Intimately acquainted with him that we joyfully yield our lives. 
You know, that's what Paul talks about a lot in his letters. The key to experiencing God, then, is not expecting an experience. Well, I'm, you know, I'm just looking for this big, high emotional thing. That's not what it is. You know, emotion comes and goes. The very fact of a truth experience that you're living out doesn't come and go. It's there. Uh, and uh, it can be good sometimes. It can be bad sometimes. Not all life experience is good, is it? Hello? No. Deborah and them just buried a brother yesterday. That's a tragic experience on the ones who are left here. You know, that kind of thing. But that is, that's the way it is. A process of belonging to him and learning through that process. All this is introduction. We need to go, all right? <laughs> 21st century, here's kind of that warning. Often talk about experiencing God being confronted by an incredible experience of emotion. I, I, I can see someone in my mind's eye right now, and I don't know, 15 years ago, someone in their family had uh, passed away, this person's father, and no evidence in the man's life that he was a believer. And all of a sudden, she said, I had this dream, and I, I just know that he's in heaven. I'm saying, what are you basing that on? Emotion. Emotion doesn't do anything. You know, um, you've got to have a fact to hold you because emotion come and goes, right? How much sugar did you have? Huh? How many of those Red Bulls did you have? Is that what they call? I don't know what they call. Is that a beer or is that one of them energy drinks? Wait, which is it? They're probably not good for you, by the way. You know, to take that much into your system at one time, no wonder you're spastic. You know, so it, all of it, that depends on that, highs and lows. It, emot you can't live on emotion. It doesn't work that way. Enlightenment or even amazing beauty, and it's often called experiential arguments. Actually, this is an old Puritan term that people have taken and totally messed up because that's not what the Puritans meant by it. But there was that sense in which they were talking about living it out in your life, experiencing. Isn't that what that means for us? It's ex sometimes that's exactly what it's called. Such a universal experience of the inner peace or incredible beauty have persuaded some people to think that they've been in the presence of God when they haven't. Near-death experience, people. Boy, that's what they'll say. Oh, I saw, the, I saw that light coming. How do you know it wasn't a train coming from hell to get you? You know? You don't really know that. You need to be careful with that kind of nonsense. That's exactly what happens. Now, here are the seven realities, all right? How many of you have been through this study recently in the last five years? Just, just a few, a few, okay? God is always at work. He's been at work from the very beginning before you were born, you know? What did Jeremiah say? You know, he says, before I was formed in my mother's womb, you knew me. You're, I mean, it's no surprise. God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. All right? He's all, oh, that's all, I'm already getting a number two. Let me back up. He's always at work. You know, if God didn't start this process, nothing would ever happen, right? Adam and Eve, who started it? God did. They didn't run back and say, God, hey, we sinned. No, they didn't do it that way. They, they didn't do it that way. God pursues a continual love relationship with you that's real and personal. You know, that's why when Jesus comes along and he starts talking about God as Abba, Father, they say, whoa, wait a minute. We only know God in the distance. We only know him on Mount Sinai. We don't know him up close. We don't know him in a personal way, and that's what Jesus does. He introduces that, and it's brand new. 
And he's, he, he's been at that. That's what his whole purpose was in the very, very beginning. He invites us to become involved with him in his work. You know, for some crazy reason, God has chosen to use people to get his stuff done. Isn't that right? What about the 12 disciples? Well, what was the backup plan? He never shared he had another one. That was it. He speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, through prayer, through circumstances, through different people. His invitation for us to work with him always leads to a crisis of faith in us. Will I do this or will I not? i got to make a decision here. What am I going to do? You must make major adjustments in your life if you're going to get in on what God's doing. Okay? Number seven, where is it? You come to know God by experience as you obey Him. Ain't that a whole different world? All right, now let's go on quickly. We'll spend a little more time on each one of them. That was just the oversight. That's what the seven realities are. That's what we'll be talking about, a different one each week, all right? He's always at work. God did not create the world and then leave it on his own like a lot of people think. They said, oh, yeah, he started it all, but now we're on our own. He, he's not transcendent. He's just out there somewhere. He has nothing to do with us. He doesn't know us personally. We're kind of on our own. No, that's not, what it, that's not the way it was. He didn't abandon it. That's not what it was. He is orchestrating history from the very day one. Because of sin, humanity has been separated, and God has been working to close that relationship, to open that relationship back up where it's been closed. Working through Christ to reconcile us to himself, right? He seeks to move people into the mainstream of his activity. He's always been about that. You remember Joseph? We're going to refer to Joseph quite a bit throughout this study. Because if anybody had the experience of God, Joseph had it. If you talk about providence, you know what that word means? You know, probably... How, how long ago did this happen? Oh, 175 years ago, you couldn't do a Ph.D. work anywhere without dealing with the providence of God and humanity. Now you can't have it in any. Providence meaning God's involvement in the world and taking care of mankind. You know, when we talk about providence, we kind of look down the road and we say, you know, we look back and say, man, if that hadn't happened, this wouldn't happen. And we say, in the providence of God, Joseph ended up in Egypt through a long, maybe 13 years of turmoil that he didn't know anything about. But in the providence of God, he comes back in chapter 50 and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In the providence of God. God looking down the corridors of time, knowing what needs to be done, and he allowed wicked men to make choices that were still under God's supervision to get Joseph there when he could have just sent him down there on a camel. Didn't work that way. You know, that's what that means. He was brought down to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer in Pharaoh's, the captain of the guard of Egypt. And this is what he says when he brought it to him. And Jehovah was with him. Now, when he goes there, he's a kid. He's a kid, a selfish kid, a conceited kid. Thought he was who? He was the center of the world. He was his dad's favorite, right? The boy had a bad attitude, you know, to start with, right? I mean, you do know that, right? He was a spoiled little brat. That's who he was. And he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master of the Egyptian. God orchestrated all that. 
God's been at work in this whole process long before Joseph had a clue about it. He was already at work in the life of Moses. You know, when all this was going on at the burning bush, he's looking down the corridors of time and saying, oh, I'm going to use you, Moses. Boy, you're a hard nut to crack, but I'm going to crack you. I'm going to send you in the desert for how many years? And then he's going to send him back. How old is he when he goes? You remember? 80. You want to be 80 before God gets your attention? Lord, I hope not. We don't live that long. As Moses and them live. God told Abram his descendants, they're going to be in bondage one day. Were they? Yes. They're fighting over there right now because of some of the same nonsense. God's own people being disobedient. That's why we're in the mess we're in. That's just it. Number two, he's always been at work, number one, and he's going to be at work till the thing's done. He's not going to quit. Number two, he pursues a continuing love relationship with us that's real and it's personal. It's not just a bunch of facts on a piece of paper. It's a personal thing. He created us to have a relationship with him. That's exactly what it says. You know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish. Why? He had a plan. Because he loves us. Why does he love us? I don't know. On our best day, we're unlovable, aren't we? Huh? I can ask somebody in your family and they can tell me. Oh, don't bother him on this day. Don't bother her on this day. This is not a good day, ever. That's the way that works. For God sent not the Son into the world to judge the world, but through the world, but through him the world might be saved. He has a plan. He has a plan. He's the one who pursues a love relationship. Adam and Eve. I keep going back to that, and we will go back to that constantly. Why? They didn't run to God and say, uh-oh, boy, we made a bad choice. No, God went looking for them. The same thing with you. Where were you when God found you? God has to come looking for you or you don't respond. Uh, absolutely. No, I don't believe in predestination that way. But if God didn't come after us in some form, that's exactly what Romans says. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none understand. None seek as God on our own. God does something to arrest our attention. Then we have to respond. What did God do to get your attention? Did you have to lose everything? You lose a family member? You lost what? What, what do you have to do? Sometimes he does that. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none under, under, none seeks God on their own. That's right. God does it because he loves us. The ultimate intimate relationship with God is both personal and practical. God cares how you treat your family. <laughs> you know that? God cares as a leader how you lead your people. Biden, hello. Trump, hello. Any leader. God's concerned about that. Go back and study the kings. Go back and study the Old Testament. What happened to the whole nation when the leader was a jerk? It cost the whole nation a long time. Remember Solomon? What happened to Solomon? Right after he died, 12 tribes split. What happened since then? All kinds of turmoil. Why? Because God told him, you start following them crazy women that you're marrying, and this is what's going to happen. And what did he do? That's exactly what he did. Oh, but Solomon was wise, was he? In some matters, not all matters. Number three, God invites you to become involved in work. Why in the world does God want to use us? I don't know. Why? It's just the way he chose. He wants to use people. Could he do it? Well, he would be a, just a, make us robots if he didn't give us a choice to respond. But he uses people. He's always used people. He used Moses. He used 
Cain and Abel. He uses all of us. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe and has been working through history to accomplish his purposes. Yes. When he reveals to us where he's working. I learned this from uh, uh, Leo Humphrey uh, when I was a, a brand new kid at Cruzville College in 87. When did we go out there? January 87. Well, that summer I went to, uh, uh, um, where did I go? El Salvador on a mission trip. And I uh, couldn't, had a blank there. Went to El Salvador on a mission trip. Leo was the leader because Leo had been going over there in Latin America. Uh, actually, Nicaragua contacted him and said, Will you come and do some work here? We understand uh, across the border there, you're having a lot of what you're doing is affecting alcoholics, and we need it. They came to him. So he's, he's got five missionary families that he supports. He doesn't have any money. God just used it, him. In that, and so we, he was our leader. We went down there, and this is what he always said. We're going to find out that this is not um, uh, purpose-driven life. What's his name? It's not his idea. You know, he kind of promoted this thing, but it's way before him. And Leo learned it. He said, you want to find out what God's doing and get in on it. That's what you want to do. That's exactly what this is. Where is God doing something? You focus there and you start working. The wave is there. Get on it and until because it may be gone, you know. And, and that's what he said. Okay, when we start doing the wrong thing, God's going to shut this thing down. Then I don't have to worry about it. While we're doing the right thing, God will give us the money. That's how he operated. And that's exactly what he did for how many years. He had these families that he was supporting, five families that were over in Latin America doing that. Because of this, see where God's working. You've got to pay attention. I remember, bless his heart, a guy I went to school with, a good friend of mine. I don't know where he is now. He had a bad situation uh, in a church, uh, and he, he left, and... Um, they, they accused him of being a Calvinist, so they said, we don't want a Calvinist. Well, he never, never promoted it out loud, but when you talk to him theologically, he believed in a little bit more predestination. You know, he never preached it from the pulpit. And so he quit, and they were going to start another church, and they started another church, and like a month into it, I talked to him, and he said, oh, yeah, we already got this. I said, whoa, wait a minute. You a month old? You can't do all that. You just need to survive first. I mean, the church. Start with just a service. Here in three weeks, they're trying to uh, reproduce everything they had going in a church been there 50 years. You can't do that. Find out what the most important thing is you need to do now. Where's God moving to get this thing started? And that's what you do. He didn't stay there. Why? It just doesn't work that way. You can't. Find out what God's doing. And don't try to fabricate something yourself or it won't last. That's why when you put somebody in a leadership position in a church that has no desire or calling for that, it will be a flop. If God doesn't call somebody to be a teacher and a leader, don't try to make them be a teacher or leader. Why? Because it will not go anywhere. What is God doing? Where are the evidences of it? That he's moving. See it. Look for it. Get in on it. That's exactly right. Paul said the same thing, right? And then a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and the man said, come over here to us. God shows him, this is where I want you. And he said, okay, let's go. You know, that's the way he operated. Number four, God speaks by the Holy Spirit, by the Bible, by prayer, by circumstances, and the church, and individuals, when we say the church. Sometimes God can, can help you see where you need to be 
by all these things or one of these things. The Holy Spirit can convict you. You just see it in the Word. Another believer says, hey, you ever thought about doing this? I think you're kind of gifted for this, maybe. That kind of way. That's exactly what it is. The testimony of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. God is a God who talks. He tells us. Well, I wonder what God wants me to do. First off, you start looking, what does God's Word say about that? You start there. If it's not plain as day, maybe some other way he's going to emphasize on this is what this means. But he's been a talking God from the day one. Adam and Eve, what he says, don't do this. <laughs> Didn't he say? Matter of fact, that's before then. It says, and God spoke and the light became. God's always been a disclosing God to tell us. How does he disclose? He starts off with his scripture. How are you going to know him if you throw the scripture out? You won't. You might have a distorted view of some kind of God, but you won't have God because that's what he chose to do. That's exactly the way it is. That's exactly what he told them. He has personally and dares to disclose himself. He made sure we understood it. You know, we, have, we know what we need to know. Some of the stuff. <laughs> Through the whole Bible, the picture of God constantly reoccurs, however great a transcendent God that he is. Is he out there? Yes. Is he involved in our lives? Yes. Does he talk to us? Absolutely. Just be careful. You know, well, God told me, just you want to be careful there now. That's why you need some other counsel of some wise people around you. Well, God told me this. First off, you say, okay, how does that, how does that coincide with what the Scripture says? Because there's always a guide there. You know, if God tells you, well, God told me to leave my wife. Okay, where's that? Let's go back and see what the Scripture says about that. Has she been unfaithful? Has this happened? This? Oh, no, he just wants him to be happy. No, he, God didn't tell you that. You know, you got to be careful with that kind of stuff. I'm not saying God won't tell you something like that, but you just need to be careful because there's always a principle in Scripture to validate anything that you say God told you, <laughs> right? We had quite a few people. God's told me Madison's going to be healed. No, she didn't. I don't know how they missed it. Uh, I didn't question them when they said it. I said, okay, time will tell. Time told, no, that was not right. They missed it. Oh, she would eventually be healed, absolutely, when she goes to heaven, but she wasn't healed on this earth. No. God's invitation number five for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief. <laughs> you know, we hear this idea of crisis of faith. You know what that means? You just quit believing. That's what it means. You don't have to work. You don't have to try to figure that one out. That's what it means. You did believe this happened, and you quit believing. That's your crisis of faith. That's it. John MacArthur was right about, not John MacArthur, John Maxwell was right about one thing, that arrogant rascal. You know, he was quite arrogant. He had some truths in his writings, but he was extremely arrogant. I quit listening to him because he was always more arrogant. One thing he said was right. You have to give up to go up. It's going to cost you. You have to give something up if you're going to go to the next level with God in your life. It's going to cost you. And that's going to be that crisis. Will I do it? God said he was going to do this when he told Moses he was going to do this. Did, did Moses believe him and go for it? Well, not start with, oh, I can't do that. I can't talk. Well, I'll get you there. I'll send somebody. That was a curse on him, wasn't he? If he just said, okay, God, Aaron wouldn't have to go on. And what would have happened at Mount Sinai? There were no golden calf. You see how that co what cost him? Oh, yeah, his not trusting God cost him, just like us. We have to hurry. There's one more, right? Where is it? Where is it? Well, 
Oh, here it is. You must make major adjustments in your life. God's going this way. You're living this way. If you're going to go there, you're going to have to make a change, adjustment. And that's part of that costing. Same thing. You have to give up to go up. It's always been that way. Are you willing to sacrifice for that? You come to know God by experience as you obey him, and he accomplishes his work through you, and you start seeing that. The bottom line is always obeying him. That's it. Well, I don't want to do that. That's, that's that crisis of faith. You made a decision. Well, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. That's what the old lady said when she was dying on the deathbed. One of her grandkids said, Grandmama, God still wants, the reason you're still alive is God still wanting to do something through you. And she said, I'm just not going to do it. I'm done. <laughs> That's where we are. Daniel put all these notes up. Again, this is just intro. We'll start on actually number one. God is constantly at work around you. That'll be our study next week in your small group. And we'll have some stuff to pass out to you. But if you have the book, just be studying it. That chapter, I think it'd be chapter, what, six, when it says uh, God is always at work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you had a plan from the very beginning to have a relationship with fallen man, us, and that you've gone to the, the farthest to make it happen. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you're still talking to us, that you're working with us, that you're patient with us. Lord, help us through this study. Learn even more areas in our life where we need to submit and give to you so that you can be glorified. And that your work can be done even greater on this earth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.